0: too long. She said, life's where we make up everything that goes wrong. over oh, mama, you never told me it's gonna be like this. And how long must I wait until I get my kicks?
1: This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our great friends at Oro Recovery, created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission, to make a rehab in Southern California that treats alcoholics, and addicts with connection and compassion rather than control. They have many, many decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness, and they make sure that if you go to Oro, you are treated like a person. And I have actual direct personal testimonial from friends who have been there that can't sing the praises of Oro enough. They have amenities you wouldn't believe, including the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, the sound bath meditation, the equine therapy, the surfing, you name it, they've got it. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to Southern California to get well, then I highly suggest going to Oro. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Knockin' Doors Down a podcast with the mission to end the stigma around addiction and mental health with humorous, honest, and vulnerable conversations featuring guest celebrities, experts, and everyday people. Celebrity guests sharing their stories of addiction and mental health issues include Charlie Sheen, Bam Margera, Kelly Osbourne, AJ McLean from the Backstreet Boys, Cheryl Burke from Dancing with the Stars, Denise Richards, Gary Busey, Butch Patrick from the Munsters, Nature Boy, Ric Flair, and me, Dave from Dopey. You can check them out on... Any place where you get your podcast, it's hosted by Jason, who is in recovery for addiction, childhood trauma, sexual trauma, and a family lineage of addiction. And co-hosted by Mikey, who struggles with substance abuse and mental health issues, including depression and anxiety. If you want to see videos, you go to their website at kddpodcast.com. Check them out. It's super fun. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Evolution Accounting and Consulting, a full service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, your bookkeeping, payroll, and almost any other business need you may have. Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off your plate, you'll be freed up to focus on what you love to do. And perhaps more important than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. That's right, a fucking crackhead. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now and knows the struggle as well as the success Use the promo code Dopey when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and my name is Dave, and I'm so excited that we have another wild and wonderful episode of The Dopey Show for you guys. I hope you're great. I wish you could respond to me in real time and say, yeah, we're okay, or no, our life sucks, or whatever, but I hope you guys are doing great. I am well. I'm currently at my dad's. We, our family, our, my nuclear family went on a little trip this last weekend. We went to upstate New York. Linda had a big plan to, uh, I think the expression is peeping, leaf peeping. And uh, Linda wanted to peep at the fall foliage as it changed, as it crescendoed into great colors of yellow and gold and red. And the truth is I love the fall. I think... The fall, I think, the, I think all the seasons are pretty psychedelic in their own way and they all connect to past drug use to me, especially the spring and the fall, although the summer has its, has its own psychedelic energy and the winter is just battening down the hatches so you're like trapped at home getting high. So every season kind of reminds me of using, but the fall has this very psychedelic quality in my mind. And whenever I'm around... The foliage i I recall like drinking mushroom tea or taking acid or smoking a bunch of bud, and like the interesting thing as a person in recovery is that I still get a charge out of the psychedelic nature of the of the the change in seasons and and the foliage and we went on this train and it was beautiful, and then we decided we were going to go shopping in New Paltz and Newpaltz is this little hippie town. Kind of uh, in the Catskills, which has a big school and a bunch of hippies and a bunch of like like pseudo head shops and like Indian restaurants and fucking organic food and jewelry and shit. So we get to the town and there's some old guy playing dead songs. And I'm like, I knew I had some dopey stickers and I knew it was time to get vandalizing. So I started uh, I started doping up New Paltz a little bit. So if you're in New Paltz and you see any dopey stickers, please let me know. And as I'm applying the circular dopey Bertha sticker on the traffic sign on the corner, the next thing I know, Linda's screaming because a bee flew up her sleeve and stung her. And according to her, it stung her like three times before she killed it and got it out of her sleeve. And she was freaking out in pain. And uh, she had gotten stung a few weeks ago and she thought... That her whole her whole arm had swelled up, and she thought she might be developing an allergy. So when she got stung this time, she got really nervous, and I kind of just because I'm kind of a jerk off, I, I sort of ignored it and was like, "You'll be okay. It's just a bee sting, whatever." And we we went up the street and we went into the first like hippy store, which is called Hetty Teddies. and I you know it's like the kind of store you don't think you should bring your children in, but we're enjoying so much hippie commerce that we bring our children in. And uh, I'm looking at some shit and Linda needed to get more patchouli. So she got some patchouli and Nora like found these like, I don't know, girls sweatpants with mushrooms on the knees. And she's like, Daddy, would you get me these? And I'm like, no. And I bought uh, Linda the, the patchouli and we left. And the next thing you know, Linda's arm is blowing up and she's freaking out. And I'm like, maybe we should just get lunch. So we sit down in a restaurant. Susan's throwing a tantrum. And the next thing we know, Linda's breaking out in hives. And and it's hysterical. And we call up urgent care. We go to urgent care. And it turns out she was in full-blown anaphylactic shock. They gave her a shot of uh, cortisone. And they rushed her to the hospital. And I had to get a hotel room. And um, it was pretty scary. And it was pretty amazing that I could be like, okay, I'll get a hotel room. Like, in my life... I guess for a while now I could get a hotel room, but I never have. It was like the first time I had to get an impromptu hotel room, and it made me feel very adult, which was cool. Me and Nora and Susan got settled, and we went swimming in the hotel room. Then we drove to Poughkeepsie to get Linda out of the hospital, and they told her that her allergy to bee stings was so intense that uh, if she ever gets stung by a bee, she needs to shoot herself up with an EpiPen and call 911. Because she's going to need to go to the hospital. It's fucking insane. So that's very scary. Um, It was a nice weekend, though. It was a cool adventure. Linda likes fucked up adventures because they make lasting memories. So that was definitely, definitely true. And if you were worried, Linda is okay. She will make her triumphant return to the dopey show soon enough. Uh, She got the EpiPen. She's she's doing fine, although the other day she took the garbage out and she said she saw some yellow jackets circling around and she flipped out, threw the garbage in the air and ran back into the house. So stay tuned. I think we will survive this thing, you know, and, and the memories will keep rolling in. And we have a very exciting episode today with... Uh, singer songwriter americana bluesy artist langhorn slim but before we get to langhorn slim i just wanted to remind you guys about the magic of dopey patreon which is at www.patreon.com/dopey podcast it helps to make the show as dopey as possible because it supports the show and you as the dopey listener get so much more dopey We have a new Dopey Patreon video. We did an an interview last week. There's exclusive music. There's old shit with Chris. There's art. Go to www.patreon.com slash podcast. Get with the scene. And another way to support the show is to buy Dopey merch. We're partnered with this company called SRO Prince out of Cincinnati. They're a bunch of fucking recovering junkies as well. They're making amazing merch. We have nice hoodies, nice long sleeves. We have a new Halloween-inspired Frankenstein design. I think we have a few uh, Grateful Dead-inspired Bertha hoodies and long sleeves left. Go to DopeyPodcast.com, buy the merch, support the show, help send my kids to college and rock the Dopey gear. And if you want hats, I have a shitload of Dopey trucker hats. I just sent out a bunch, but I still have more. And once they're gone, I'm not getting them back. I also have classic Dopey snapbacks and of course the Oyve snapbacks. Just Venmo me at Dopey podcast and you'll get the good shit. I also have amazing Dopey stickers. That's a lot of fucking advertisement, but it's all to support the show. If you love Dopey, support Dopey. And before we go, what do you mean before we go? It's time for our featured interview with the great Langhorn Slim, straight out of Pennsylvania. Here he is, Mr. Langhorn Slim. All right, Dopey Nation, you are in for a big time treat because I am on the phone with a big time musician with millions and millions and millions of streams on Spotify. You know, Conan O'Brien is a huge fan of this musician. Me and this musician happened to go to the same college, which is crazy. When I used to play clubs in New York, you had been the guy at the club I used to play. But most <laughs> importantly, me and this musician were supposed to do this thing at the Park City Song Summit. His name is Langhorn Slim. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Are you kidding me? Nice Whoa.
0: to be here with Of the level,
1: the level's okay. What were we supposed to do exactly in Park City?
0: I think it was going to start off as just like a walk around the park and see how things went, and maybe get a bite to eat. Nice, in a movie, first date. uh, Yeah, I mean, I try not to go in with with too big of expectations, uh, which is sometimes difficult. But yeah, it was a bummer that that got canceled.
1: Yeah, I was super excited. Should
0: I say Uh, they are going to do it next year? Pending, uh, what's going on in, in our world, I suppose.
1: Do you have a thought that it's going to happen? Like, are you confident that the Park City Song Summit next year is going to be All Systems Go? <laughs> to
0: be very honest with you, I haven't put a ton of thought into it. Um, so I, I could not say. I would say in one year from now, who effing knows? Well, I really have no idea.
1: Can I tell you that's the only thing on my calendar? The only thing I think about in the morning is the Park City Song Summit. That's it. Every day. I'm like, is it happening? So
0: what are your thoughts? Are are
1: we going? I don't know. It's the only place that wants me to go. So I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that it's happening, you know?
0: I hope it happens, too. It would have been a lot of fun and will be a lot of fun.
1: I think but I think we were supposed I, to be like the spiritual portion of the show somehow, which is hysterical to me.
0: And a lot of a lot of pressure. I don't know how that that makes my spiritual condition feel.
1: I know. Um, I, I was listening to you on NPR this morning. Uh, I mean, you weren't on NPR this morning, but I was listening to you talking about your record, Strawberry Mansion, and spirituality and stuff. And like, mm. when did you find spirituality? Let's start there. Oy
0: they! what a question. I found music and art as a, as a young kid in, in Pennsylvania. That, I guess, was my, my um, sort of way into myself, into a place that I couldn't find out there. In a, in a way, you know, I'm from like a suburban town outside of Philadelphia.
1: Which um, town? King of Prussia? No, but not super
0: far. It's called, the town is called Langhorn, which is very, was very thrilling when they named it after me. Nice. When I moved away. Yeah. So that's uh, how
1: you got the name.
0: Yeah. 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 Cause Busch you were County. slim,
1: you were slim and from Langhorn. Yeah. Very creative. I know.
0: All right. I'm I, were, I When I was a young, a young tot, I got really into like old blues and folk music. And I loved that. I really wanted to be, which I've certainly said before, like, uh, like a, African-American, like 300 pound black gospel singer. And that wasn't really gonna be in the cards. So I still was really inspired by a lot of that music and in old blues music and folk music, there are these guys and these gals that would take, say the name of the place that they were from, tack like a slim or something like that. And I loved the nicknames. My grandfathers also had lots of nicknames for their friends, which I really, I really thought was, um, was real sweet and cool.
1: So, yeah. Yeah, nicknames that, are the best. So you, you did music and art. I want to know when it when the spear, I mean, like, because, yeah, like what you're saying, like, blues music and, and, and I think you're very soulful. I think your music is very soulful, and I really like it. Um, obviously, you couldn't be a 300-pound black gospel singer, but you sing very soulfully. When did you feel, like, the God in you thing?
0: The... Through, through music or
1: through... I mean, that's a weird question. You know, usually I start with the drugs. I don't know why I'm starting with the spirit. No, this is right.
0: I mean, that we could start... In, like, from a very early age, I did feel like I had something that I wanted to make or create or perform, and I didn't have access to what that was. I didn't play an instrument. So a lot of that for me was, like, getting in trouble in school because I was acting out. I couldn't sit still. Um... Probably an alcoholic or addict from from birth, and was just very kind of needy, but also super disinterested in school, super distrustful of authority, particularly the authority uh, that I thought wasn't equipped to be authority. So yeah, I got into a lot of not serious trouble, thankfully, but I got school was a mess for me in my you know in my early ages, and then music and i was a little theater kid i could get the good roles for the boys because i was like one of probably three boys that would try out for the parts and i could sing a little bit and so yeah uh, music always just hit me very deeply and and art and anything that could sort of inform my little mind and heart that there was a world of you know freaks and outsiders and and art artists and all that kind of stuff that you know if i kind of just held on long enough um, maybe I'd get to meet them or maybe I would get to play in a band, you know, whatever it was that those dreams early on. And I think through hearing music and seeing certain films, you know, that was of certainly a spiritual nature. I mean, I was born and raised Jewish light, if you will. Sure. As Bar Mitzvah. And, you know, I'm still proud of, of uh, my, my Jewish heritage. You know, somebody, um,
1: somebody just tweeted at me that I'm having, I, I'm, I'm raised pretty much identical to you. And someone just tweeted that I'm having too many Jewish guests on Dopey. Can you believe that anti-Semitism right there? It's unbelievable. I mean, Horrible. My gosh! My gosh! I know. That is a that is a hell of a tweet. I know. I, I saw this guy. There's an artist who who puts a T-shirt he didn't out. Did you
0: have too many Jewish, or did he say you have too many Jews? A little different, isn't
1: it? Not to me. To me, it felt like the same thing. But it, yeah, was, so- it was. It was. It was like. He, I don't know. I've had a few Jewish guests and I've had a, many non-Jewish guests. But like, I, so I tweeted back at him with a picture of Hong Kong Fooey smashing a swastika. And I said, that's not right, man. Come on. It wait. isn't right. No. Um, uh, I,
0: I think you should only have Jewish alcoholics on, on the show.
1: Well, there's so that,
0: that. I'll tweet you that. Yeah, so I'll, do I'll it.
1: Try to, I'll try to spice it up for, for the tweet. Jump into the into the into the into the Twitterverse to help me deal with these anti Semitic members of the Dopey Nation. I can't even believe such a thing exists. Amazing.
0: I'll, I'll get I'll get I'll get in that thread as soon as we get off the, the, the phone.
1: Excellent. Excellent. When did you take drugs for the first time?
0: So I think maybe fourteen. Let me give you a little backstory if I may. Please. I was raised ver- by my mom. And very strictly, you know, I sort of say it as a joke, but it's real. Like I have this memory, at least I think the memory is real. See what she says, but that that she like sat me down when I was little and was like, "I want you to stay away from three things as you grow up." And these three, I said, "What are these three things?" She said, "Drugs. Stay away from drugs. Drugs are bad. Uh, alcohol. Alcohol can be very bad. Redheaded Gemini's. You know, redheaded Gemini's can be very bad." And I thought that was interesting.
1: Redheaded and, uh, Gemini's.
0: Oh yeah. And my first girlfriend was a redheaded Gemini who enjoyed drugs and alcohol. (laughs) And, um, you know, I guess you got to be careful of uh, what you tell your kids. They might run just right to it. But my mother was raised around. She she had seen some of the worst shit that happens with addicts and and lost somebody very close to her as a kid and saw a lot of the the horrors that, um, you know, they that can go down. Some of just like the, the bleakest, darkest shit. And so that impacted her now in my sobriety and in like a newfound, very sweet, uh, beautiful relationship that is opening up between she and I, we've always been very close, but it's as it tends to happen, you get closer with your friends and your family. I think, um, when you're not fucked up all the time, um, yeah, I've gotten to see even beyond what I knew how much it, it impacted her, uh, So all this to say, I was a little later than some of I remember kids smoking weed and starting to drink and me being like these fucking dummies. You know, they're all in in an attempt to be rebellious. Everybody's being alike, you know, and smoking cigs and and smoking weed in the woods. Uh, So I was like a year or two behind. And then once I got going, it was it was just I don't know what age that was, 14 or 15 or whenever it was. And that was with weed, which I never, weed always exacerbated my anxieties more than calmed them down. But I could see quite clearly now, even then I was abusing drugs that I didn't even really like the way that they made me feel just because they kind of got me feeling different. Right. You know, maybe we'll get more into that sort of thing or maybe we won't. But yeah, I think around 14 or 15. And then when I discovered that sweet, sweet booze, that was that was kind of a wrap because booze would do for me what weed did not, which was quiet my mind and soften my my heart, if you will. And I think that's really what I was trying to medicate for many, many years was to, to somehow quiet my mind quickly, um, make me feel less anxious, make me feel more sort of comfortable in my own skin and kind of, you know, give me that warm feeling, which as I'm sure you can relate to in the beginning is, is, feels quite divine, dare I say. And like when I was starting to play guitar and write songs and to start to drink, it did, it quieted like the, the negative uptight, you know, kind of voices in my head or whatever. And um, it kind of let that flow more. I would feel more comfortable in social situations or, or just by myself alone. So it is, As soon as I got going, it took a long, long time. I I knew at an early age, not that I would identify as an addict or an alcoholic. I think it took me a long, long time to get anywhere comfortable with such words. But I knew that alcohol especially was going to be in my life a lot from the first time that I got drunk. And then when I found drugs and and certain drugs that I particularly enjoyed using, uh, yeah, I knew that that was... That was going to be a, uh, a steady companion.
1: Right. And I think we, we have a lot in common with that stuff. For me, it was the opposite. Like alcohol, like alcohol just didn't work with my body for some reason. And, and we did. But it was the same thing. It was like soothing and makes me feel confident. The greatest thing about it was that it made me not care so much. I cared yeah. so much. Um, and I also was really into the blues when I was a kid. I played a... Uh, I was really in I, I learned how to play blues harmonica when I was a kid, and oh, cool. uh, and I would like play around the city and i you know I wanted to be like I don't know, I had that fantasy of being some kind of musician, and mine didn't get very far, like I played in a couple bands that got very, very nowhere, really. but you actually became a real musician, like and I'm sure that alcohol and bud were tools towards that end. Was it like that?
0: Well, weed for me in, in Langhorne in Bucks County, the town that I'm from, that was, when I started smoking weed, that was before I went, finally I got asked to leave the public school, thank goodness, and I went to this little alternative artsy school.
1: Uh, Wait, why did you school. get asked to leave?
0: They, they taught me a word that I didn't know at the time, uh, which was insubordinates. I had to ask <laughs> my mom what that was. Right. Um, I think it was overall insubordinance, And I was getting into fights, you know, never winning at them, but just, just acting out a lot. And uh, it just wasn't a, a, a good a good fit for this guy. But I think in the very, you know, before I, I went off to this other little high school, I would come home, I would often smoke weed with my oldest, bestest friend from back there, Chris. And I would immediately get paranoid. and ha- And he'd just be like, dude you do this every time like we would get high and i would bolt home could not hang but in the bolting home i was really excited to go and play guitar and i was just sort of learning how to play guitar and um and that gave me uh you know i guess it sort of pushed me into isolation and i don't mean to romanticize this at all but i guess at that particular time it pushed me into a room uh, with myself and an instrument that I was learning. Obviously, one could do that without, you know, getting blazed out of their gourd, but that's what I was doing. So, yeah, I don't know if that helped or hurt my uh, abilities to learn the instrument, but that's kind of how I started to to learn how to play guitar.
1: Well, it's like a great uh, side effect of the paranoia <laughs> of Bud. You're, like, by yourself, and you're with your guitar, and you're by yourself, and and, and it probably like, put you to work, you know what I mean? You knew not At to that leave that time room. it
0: put me to work because I, I think it worked a little differently for me than when I tried it in later years, which I probably wouldn't play music because the voices in my head would be like, you suck, you suck. Mm-hmm. And weed turns that up for me. It does the opposite for me as it does, I suppose, for you or for anybody else that it chills out. It's utter chaos in my mind, and it's not, not the fun kind of chaos. But yeah, booze was, was different, and other drugs were different. Uh, and, and so I kind of left weed behind and alcohol became my main, my main squeeze. And then I, I always was very fond and this was what I had my relapse with prescription pails, man. Uh, and there was no shortage of those, you know, in, in, in schools and with, with the youths. When you're,
1: who, when you're, teen- when, when you're a teenager, when does the name Langhorn Slim pop up? Um,
0: it was my senior, I think my senior year of high school. Uh, again, I went to an artsy school. So for me, they let me as like my senior, whatever they call that project thesis, make a record in my basement and
1: nice. you know, I think
0: gave me a really good grade for completing that. <clears throat> but yeah, they let me do that. And for that, I, I gave myself the name Langhorn Slim.
1: Like a school With. project. I mean, was it a blues record? It was. It's something that
0: people I think could hear. It's out there. I think somewhere. It's called Slim Pickens, and they were burnt CDs. I would sell them at Sidewalk Cafe and other places. That back in the day. That's where I knew the Trachtenberg family from. And yeah, there were some <laughs> absurd attempts at blues music, um, and uh, I don't really know. Like, kind of weird, folky, rock and roll inspired stuff.
1: See in my in my imagination, all of that music comes out of the basement tapes. Like whenever I hear music like that, I'm like, this is all from the basement tapes. But that's just, I'm sure the basement tapes came from something else. But it all yeah. It all- for me,
0: I I you know, and I I love Dylan and and the Basement Tapes and and all. I'm a huge Dylan fan. For me, it was I got I loved punk rock music and like for my bar mitzvah, my cousin Noah, who I looked up to a lot growing up, he lived in New York and would show me. You know, I would come up as a kid and would show me, uh, take me to like shows and take me busking in the park and stuff like that. So, so yeah, he got me like Butthole Surfers album, uh, Pavement album, L7. Um, Could he play? He's an art, a visual artist. So like uh, he, he would play. take
1: you out and he'd be like, look at my cousin. He can fucking rock it out no, on the guitar.
0: You no, know, he would take me out and, and sort of walk away, but keep an eye on me so nobody fucked with me. But he believed, he was one of the first people that thought I had something interesting going on. Um, so yeah, he would take me uh occasionally into the Washington Square Park or the subways. But then so I, I had that music. I had classic rock from the like classic rock stations and oldie stations in Philly and New Jersey. And then I got really into which probably inspired uh that early, you know, high school stuff the most was um in high school I got really into uh, Harry Smith Folk Anthology, which, like you're saying, Basement Tapes, that for me, it, it was like music, like field recordings, but music t- that sounded like it was recorded on another planet. And I don't know if there, if it was from like the 30s, 40s, uh, but in that time period. I can't remember exactly when that goes back to. But I got into like Alan stuff yeah. and uh, Harry Smith, <laughs> and I think that kind of blew my mind because I really – the, the fantasy and the dream was to be in a in a band, but I hadn't found the band that i you know the, the other k- kids to play with really so then hearing this music, which a lot of it was a solo guy or girl, just killing it uh and like the most soulful you know badass stuff I'd ever heard, and it just being one person that really that really inspired me a lot
1: see the fantasy about sidewalk cafe when i was when I was like in my in my early twenties. I would write songs and I would try to go play at uh, open mics and I would go to the sidewalk cafe and, um, and I, I did a weird show. Like I did a music TV show in like 1999 and we did, uh, an episode on, on, uh, the anti-folk night with latch Yo, and yeah. all that shit. Yeah. And the legend of the sidewalk cafe was that Beck came out of the sidewalk cafe uh-huh. Yeah, and I guess you came out of it too, but just you guys, right?
0: Well, I mean, I don't know how much Beck came out of it. Beck, I guess, maybe played it. I don't know. I saw Daniel Johnston play there. Right, incredible. Right. When I was playing there, Regina Spektor would pop up right. from time to time. Nellie MacKay, uh, this guy Paleface. Jeffrey Lewis.
1: Yeah, I went to. So I he went to purchase too. Album.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: He went to purchase when I went to purchase that Jeffrey Lewis character. That's when I did heroin for the first time. Was at purchase.
0: You're when, just a, a, a touch older than I am, then.
1: Yeah, I'm a smidge older than you. When you're at the sidewalk cafe, are you feeling alcoholic or or addicty?
0: Yes, but without knowing it, really. Um, I don't know if I knew it or not. I knew that. Okay, let me let me get my my. Uh, my thoughts in line here. Please. I knew that I I have a memory of sitting on a bench in high school, waiting for a kid to come and sell me their Adderall or Ritalin or whatever it was. And just like obsessing over it, whatever that was sophomore year or whatever in in high school and thinking like, I'm the only fucking kid, like all these, like the few kids that had it knew that I, that, that weren't taking it themselves, knew that I wanted it. We had like a system. So I knew that that was unusual uh, or it seemed a little bit unusual. It also seemed unusual that, like I said, I didn't even really like weed yet. When I would buy some, it was gone very quickly. And then when I would hang out with other friends, you know, at a party or by the river or some shit and somebody would have a, a little weed and some, somehow the question might be asked, Oh, where'd you get it? When did you get it? it would be like, Oh, I've had this for like a month. That, it stuck in my head. is like, how do you have that for a month that sort of that scene lasted a long time up until like you know i remember many years later uh i was living in northern california with my girlfriend at the time and for years i would you know we'd get up pay the check i would have probably had a bottle or two bottles of wine before even going to dinner she would have a glass or two and uh almost every time leave a glass half drank and i would get up pay the check put my coat on and just chug the wine. And at one point after doing that countless times, she was like, why, that's fucking gross. Why do you do that? It bothers me when you do it. I didn't even realize I was doing it. And it occurred to me that it's like, I don't understand how you don't do it. It's just getting me closer to where I feel. And oblivion wasn't even where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to that sweet, that that elusive sweet spot. But anyway, I'm getting off track. Here.
1: No, you're not. I like this. What's the describe the elusive sweet spot?
0: Oh, okay. I like to refer to this as the divine dance floor, the elusive sweet spot. And it at least for me and my experience, it's one of the great ironies of addiction, which is chasing your tail, essentially. Like wanting to everybody knows that feeling for themselves that enjoys the feeling of intoxication which is maybe you feel like you're a better flirt or maybe you feel like you're a better, I don't know... Uh, guitar player. Guitar player or pool player. And there <clears throat> is, I believe, some truth in that. Like all of my experience and all of your experience wasn't bad. Some of it was fucking beautiful or else you w- we wouldn't get hooked to it, I don't think. Um, it is that whatever it was that I was trying to, to medicate so ferociously, like for me, I wasn't a... I wasn't like a social drinker. Uh, I was, but but I was just as happy to drink alone. I wasn't a social drug user with some of the drugs that I liked at all because I didn't want other people to know I was on it.
1: What were your drugs?
0: Uh, Well, I liked opiates, but I never, but I hate needles, thank God, and I think that that saved me. But I, I really liked pharmaceuticals, and you know, definitely dabbled or tried uh, most anything that cross that I, that crossed paths with, but,
1: but like Benzos, like, like well, Benzos you, were
0: Benzos were my relapse. What started my relapse.
1: Let's yeah, get to the we, first, let's get to the first sober before we relapse, Mr. Slim. Yeah, 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 yeah. Keep me on track. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hold am with you a hundred percent. Um, yeah. we're in that I'm elusive sweet spot and, and, but I want to know, like when you're living in California, and you're drinking bottle after bottle of wine, like, what are the drugs you're doing? Like, when did you notice, like, holy, like, what what made you need to get sober the first time anyway?
0: Well, here's the thing about the wine, too, because I became what I would certainly say an official wino. Like, where I'm from, you know, somebody has a birthday party, and, you know, people bring, like, six-pack of Yingling or something. I wound up falling in love with somebody in San Francisco who's from a small town in Napa Valley, moved out there. And then people would bring into the dinner parties like the best wine that, you know, exists or certainly that I had ever had. So I got really into not learning anything about wine, but just really into drinking it. And so she would go to work and I would chug a lot of, I remember what, and this, this breaks my heart to tell the story and it's still kind of, yeah, it doesn't make me feel good. But it was for some birthday, somebody brought some like a Magnum bottle, a big ass bottle, of some fancy wine. And I, she, my girlfriend at the time went to work and I was stayed at home and I was, you know, trying to write some music or whatever I was doing. She came home and I was, you know, in bad shape. I was just passed out or incoherent. And she went into the other room and saw that I had drank this entire bottle, which I suppose she had told me. Uh, we should keep for a special occasion. It's an expensive, big-ass bottle of wine. And she said, she was like, Sean, why? Why would you fucking drink? Like, it's a Tuesday. I told you this is, like, for a special occasion. You just drank it by yourself. And I just remember thinking, like, it is a special occasion. Like, I was home. I was trying to, like, work on some shit. And just, like, the look in people's eyes of not recognizing, like, the, when caught in that behavior that seems not even justified. It seems like, well, why wouldn't I drink it? It was a gift. It's there. It's big. It's full of something that's going to make me feel the way that
1: I want to feel. You made You made the occasion special. I made the occasion
0: special, but it was not very special for anybody else that I was going to be around. And I just remember, and I have different memories of that So sort of just seeing in, in other people whom I love and love me in their eyes, just kind of like, what is the, what is your problem like you know kind of concerned and angry and grossed out and confused and just like why why do you why do you do this like why do you have to do
1: this to such excess
0: but yeah those the you're asking about drugs the drugs that i would
1: well alcohol counts sure sure sure
0: but those those were the things that i enjoyed which i'm very grateful to be here talking to you today because i just i keep hearing these stories of You know, these bootleg, you know, Viking and, you know, all these sort of uh, painkillers, you know, getting made out in the jungle and amounts of fentanyl that they say can kill you in one pill. Like, and during, I know we're not at the relapse yet, but like, that's the shit that I I, I didn't drink again, but that's the stuff that I was doing and not from my own prescriptions. So it's like, oh, yeah, yeah.
1: It's serious. I got it.
0: When you drink to a certain extent, and you're just taking all kinds of drugs like that, not everybody, as we know, not everybody wakes up or gets to have uh, more chances, which is what led me to get sober the first time, is that I felt physically, spiritually, emotionally, beyond depleted. Like, I felt like a dead man walking. And then that's, I don't know if I'm uh, taking us too far, but that's why I, I decided to on my 33rd birthday to quit drugs and alcohol
1: so what was there a bottom was there like what was i mean you had you had a flourishing career right you were sought after you're torn you don't care about the park city i mean i'm not with all due respect to the park city song summit you play all over the place you know what i mean you're like you're a professional
0: okay but just to backtrack I did not mean to seem like I do not care about. I I do care about it, and I look forward to it. I I'm know,
1: just, I know. I'm sorry I put you in that position. I didn't mean that at all. That's okay.
0: So your question is because it's it might seem from outside of oneself that somebody is has a career and is doing fine. Why would you continue to?
1: No, the question is more, what was it in that situation that made you realize you needed to, to start over at I 33? Felt
0: for, yeah, I had felt for a long time, if I survived the be- some of the behavior, that it, and if I was fortunate enough to get to a point where I was willing to quit, that that would be, and this is so fucked up, and because I wasn't doing therapy and I wasn't in a 12-step program or anything, I did not realize that that's not how it worked. I thought that whatever I felt like was blocking me from closer relationships, next steps in my career, like all the stuff that I put my, have put myself and continue to more than I would like, my self-worth, my, my identity into, which tends to be how good is the song that I'm writing, are there people at, at the venue, romantic relationship, that kind of thing. Sure. So I thought that any, you know, I felt sort of stagnated with, with career relationship and that if I were able to quit that, you know, that, that there would uh, I would burst through the ceiling and, and fly through the air. Nothing could stop me now. And, and that wasn't the that wasn't not like I woke up one day and thought, had that thought and then quit. I quit because as we hear a lot, um, but I didn't know at the time it had sort of stopped working for me in that elusive sweet spot or divine dance floor i had no moves there anymore it was just making me depressed and exacerbating anxiety i was performing poorly super inconsistent on on stage the band were like a band of brothers that have you know stuck with me for for years and years it seemed like at any moment uh i felt like they were against. i felt like everybody was against me a lot of the time when all they wanted me to do was to you know be a nice person and, and stop drinking to the extent that I was, I almost knocked something over and I lost my, my train of thought. No, you're uh, talking
1: about like when you, when you decided you had it and that things weren't good, what did you do to stop? Like, did you, could you just walk away from it? You didn't join a 12 step fellowship. You didn't go to rehab, right?
0: No. The one thing that I did that I think helped, what which held me to some accountability at the time was that I told my mother that I was going to stop. And I told my, my best friend, who's been sober for a long time, and has told me for years that, uh, jokingly and not jokingly, that he's saving me a seat in uh, in, in the uh, fellowship that he has been a part of for many, many years. I told him, and I went to, I'd moved to Nashville maybe a year or two before, came home, it was my 33rd birthday, I laid in my room, which was like an upstairs sort of attic, little room at the time, in a friend's place, and detoxed and didn't realize that that's what was happening, didn't realize that it was potentially dangerous. I wasn't addicted to drugs at that time. I had sort of stepped away from from the pharmaceuticals. So maybe it made it a little easier. I don't know. But I remember there was like a radio that wasn't plugged in. You know, there's voices coming out of this radio. It felt very much like an exorcism. I know that that sounds very dramatic, but it really felt like there were There was like a creature, which I often refer to addiction or my own alcoholism or addiction as a creature. But it felt very much like there was this this force that was in me that did not want to come out and that I was there to reckon with and to get out. So it was it was intense. And I was definitely hearing some shit that I don't think if you were in the room, you would have heard um, and experiencing some stuff like that. And I don't know, you know, my my memory doesn't serve me with a lot of things and how the actual timing of things. So I don't remember when people ask me now, how long is it going to take for them to get off the physical feeling of it all? uh, You know, when they're when they're getting sober, I don't really remember how many days or, or weeks, you know, it took for it to sort of feel like I'd purge this. This thing,
1: but um, but kicking alcohol is like is notorious because it's the one thing. I mean, you kicking benzos and alcohol are the are two things that can actually kill you. So like, yeah, what well was, I knew
0: that. I, I only knew that years later when I was in a treatment center for benzo addiction, and they said, you know, kicking benzos and alcohol are the two ones that can kill you. Right. Uh,
1: yeah. So what was so you're you're basically having auditory hallucinations in the attic. Do you ha- do you remember like feeling like shit? What was what was going through your head? I remember feeling like shit. <laughs> Good.
0: Uh, and I and I remember feel, probably feeling like, well, you know, no shit. No shit, I feel like shit. And I don't know, man. I for better or for worse as as you know, we're doing this over the phone right now because I don't have a computer. Uh, I usually have a computer, but it's in the shop. I'm very tech slow in a lot of ways and so at the time like googling something like detoxing from booze it w- it wasn't even something that would occur to me going and buying a book on it I didn't do anything like that so nothing informed me outside of whatever I had heard in the past from people or a movie or something like that so I think it was just I knew that I would feel shitty but I didn't have any other real context for any of it hearing things seeing things was not brand new to me that had Happened more than a few times prior due to excessive use of particularly uh uppers that led to some real wild shit.
1: Like what? So, uh,
0: well, it was called in, in a hospital a psychotic break. Um, I still don't know what exactly was going on there.
1: Was that before this the kicking up before 33 you had these kind of uh psychotic yeah, that was a lot episodes? Younger.
0: And so when, if people ask about uh, a bottom, it wasn't like that for, you know, I guess for a lot of people, probably there was a lot of bottoms. There were worse things that had happened prior to like the day that I decided to quit that did not make me quit. You know, like that experience where I, you know, I showed up at my mom's, it happened in New York and then I was back in Pennsylvania. I showed up, I'll have to tell my mom not to listen to this because I don't think she wants to revisit any of it, but. Definitely
1: uh, tell her not to listen to it.
0: Yeah. And I love you, Mom, if
1: you do listen to it, <laughs> She'll uh, listen. She loves you. Come on.
0: She does love me, and, and she, she, finds, she finds where I'm at out there on the Internet. But, yeah, I showed up to work. Uh, I had been seeing a lot. I basically entered into a different dimension or some kind of, like, hellscape. This isn't something that I generally uh, talk about. So I'm feeling some physical sensations, honestly, even by discussing it with you. But, yeah, it was – after being up for, you know, too many days, taking too many things, I learned later that I was taking, like, pills that were, like, time released, but I didn't realize that they were time released. So I was just like, kind of doubling down on all of this, this crap. And um, what was it? It was a large amount of Adderall and then whatever else there was, and I don't even remember. I honestly don't even remember. But I remember thinking that some people that I loved very much were in danger. And, you know, my mother at the time was a divorce attorney. Showing up to her work, trying to explain any of that, you know, was more than alarming. Thought that my bandmates, you know, basically was, you know, hearing things, seeing things, and took me to our, like, family doctor. And he's like, you got to take him to the hospital. And then I went there and they kept me there for a few days in the place that they keep you when you're seeing and hearing things that the rest of the people around aren't seeing and hearing. right and yet that was not that was that was a big deal but it wasn't i I suppose i bet it slowed me down for a little bit but it it didn't it didn't do the trick i still had years of running around did it like did
1: it slow down your use of adderall or coke or meth or whatever you were fucking with
0: yeah, coke and meth were, weren't anything I really was fucking with at uh, at that time. It was maybe in my head it seemed like more less lethal or there was less stigma in my mind to these like pharmaceuticals. I don't really know. I think that's bullshit. I think I had done coke and I was like, I don't understand. It was just bad coke probably. I was like I don't understand and I had – tried heroin, uh, snorted it. And I didn't understand why people were eager to do those when you could get these synthetic forms of them that for me felt more
1: potent and long-lasting. Well, it sounds like I always wanted, I never did much Adderall. I did a tiny little bit of Ritalin in college, at Purchase actually. And then I did, I never did Adderall and I didn't like Coke, but I wish. It's like if I have one regret about my substance abuse, it's that I didn't do more Adderall. I think I would have gotten a lot of stuff done.
0: Yeah, but you know, for whatever I got done on it, it also, one, quite literally, it made me insane on a few occasions, and two, the amount of t- because, and I think a lot of drugs and alcohol affect me differently than they do, at least the people that I was around that, that, that were using those things. It would sort of have almost reverse, just different effects on, on me, but there were songs that I wrote while doing adderall and other things like that but there were also days that i would just stay focused on something and feel super into it you know you've seen this heard the story or seen it you know there's scenes and films and just like obsessing over a sentence or like a little drawing and then you look back on it and it's like there's like three words there so yeah i don't know i i got some things done but i also spent a lot of time just losing my mind
1: Right, 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 and the right.
0: and 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 the come down for me from that stuff is, is is the worst of anything I've ever done. It makes me feel basically suicidal. Like I feel super, super depressed, super depleted. Definitely can't like look somebody in the eye. Definitely can't get out of my house to like get a sandwich. It's really a, a hardcore. You know down for me on that stuff
1: right it depletes you and and when you told your mom you weren't going to drink anymore was she relieved did she know that there was something going on with you since i was a kid my mom knew
0: and i asked her recently was there a time that you that you thought of having some sort of intervention or, or trying to force me into rehab it almost surprised me after i went to rehab and got sober this time and i'm doing it you know with in 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 a program and with therapy and stuff i had had that thought like I've been a mama's boy my whole life. I'm very close with my mother, and she has seen all this stuff before. It wasn't brand new. Like she lost a brother to heroin. So I did ask her, and and she said, "Well, yeah, I mean, of course, I thought about it a ton, but I I knew from previous experience that you can't force somebody to get sober. You can't force somebody. Right. I guess people do that. They have interventions. People, I guess, force people to go to, you know, this court mandated."
1: Treatment, whatever.
0: Uh, Treatment and all that. I don't know the success rate or not. But anyway, I think just like this time, my mom was beyond, I wouldn't even know the word to put it. Uh, Relieved wouldn't be the word, uh, I would think, to hear me say I'm going to quit or I have quit. I think there would be great reluctance to trust that that was really going to be the case with what she has seen in her life and what she has seen with me. So you know even now i'm sure she just hopes every day as as i do uh, and and i know that of course one day at a time you know as as cliche as some of the slogans are that's the that's the real shit yeah. um, i don't know if she you know i don't know that it's going to last forever uh, or i'm going to stay this path forever the proof is in the pudding though as i do stay the path and do really and you know give therapy a shot for the first time in my life really do work these steps really do connect with Uh, with the program which is not when i went to treatment this time um the only time i've ever been i had no idea it was a 12-step treatment place i was pissed when i found out that it was i was like oh fuck man i just wanted somebody to cure me right as a lot of us do sure i i wanted to take uh heroic doses of psychedelics to just be cured or to have somebody just slap the shit out of me whatever it would take or Did, to grow out of it. Were
1: you a psychedelic guy? Did you love psychedelics?
0: I believe in the, the powers of psychedelics. I always had a difficult time with them myself. Maybe like weed, it made me feel very... I didn't know that I had such control issues until I got sober this time. Mm. And until I've had some of the psychedelic experiences that I have had, where I just felt unprepared and very scared and you know, controlling. And then when you're trying to fight against... The power that is a particular psychedelics, it, you know, it's I think it kind of have to lean into it. And I'm, I'm I, I wasn't a leaning into it kind of user. And most of my experiences were not in they were like in party atmospheres or like in my room because I could get some shit. And so I would just take it.
1: Right. And what you're talking about is pro, is like why everyone is so hot about psychedelics being useful in in kicking drugs or getting over alcohol because of what you're talking about, basically.
0: Yeah, and I and I and I happen to I'm not very well educated on that, but I would not poo-poo any of that. I think that it's a real damn shame that that all of the studies were shut down in this country when they were, uh, and I think it's exciting that um, well, they're opening up the
1: books again. They're opening yeah. up the books, especially like in California and stuff. What oh, was yeah, yeah. what was that period between the when you when you when you went to the attic and you gave up the the booze and you gave up the the pills and you relapse like what was your period of time without a program like and how long did it last for
0: I think it lasted for about three years okay and I don't I don't know exactly because I started to when I started to delve I delved really slowly and then you know the rest was history in short if I'm if I'm capable of putting it telling any sort of short story what that looked like was after getting clean my life it really as cheesy as this is i don't care it was it really was like it felt wizard of oz i didn't know the term pink cloud at the time but it felt like it went from black and white which actually i prefer black and white in certain things but if you will <laughs> black and white yes. to second color yes like it was bright and beautiful and i was able to connect with people more um you know like Something like being social or, or like flirting you know with somebody at a bar or something you know people want to drink or get fucked up for that. it never made me uh, feel better at that or more willing to do it i would I would drink and then I would get like real in my head after a while and i wouldn't you know I would just sort of sit there so when I got sober, I found that I was just able to talk to people a lot easier, my concerts I think I was very lucky that. I was immediate. I know this wouldn't be good for everybody, but I was thrust into bars very quickly because that's where I make a living and do my thing. Mm. So I was around alcohol very soon after, immediately after. And I was greeted with not just acceptance. I was greeted with like joy that I had stopped by my bandmates, by the people that I worked with, by my family, by anybody But knew. And then as a performer, I just felt like I was able to which is a big fear, right? Like when I both times that I got sober, I was scared shitless that it would hurt me hurt me creatively, which is historically a very common thing I think for totally any creative people. But what I was able to find very quickly at least on stage was that I was able to sing better. Uh, it wasn't that I was just able to hit, certain, you know, again with the elusive sweet spots uh, which would exist, but they're fucking elusive. So then I found I was just way more consistent. I was able to put on a full good show and then do it again the next night. I was able to buy this house that I'm speaking to you now, like two years into sobriety, I bought this little pink dream house, which was a whole other crazy story that I felt very sort of cosmically guided and all things that I attributed to this magical zone that I felt like I was in, which I was in, uh, of, of being a sober person. And then it's comical now, but... At the time, it fucked me up bad i wasn 't doing any therapy wasn 't doing any um,
1: program whatever
0: program stuff so then once that period that sweet sweet period turned into still all of the problems that I had with myself that i didn 't recognize you know so basically, what happened was there was a woman who I was infatuated with, I wanted desperately to make her my girlfriend she would she would come close enough to sort of pet me on the head, kiss me on the cheek, and, you know, maybe some other things, but, like, wasn't... I felt like the universe was dangling this carrot, and that if I could make this woman... uh, It sounds so aggressive, I know, but it's just the truth. Make this woman, like, love me and be mine. Mm -hmm. very possessive, too, I know. That that would be... Because in my mind, the thing that I... That would make me the man that I always dreamt that I would be or could be is is that kind of partnership with like the perfect love and that my career so i just recorded a record the label thought it was going to do particularly well i thought it was going to do particularly well and it did particularly just fine but it didn't it didn't blast me off into the next phase you know it didn't like put me into the bigger rooms that you know there's a line out the door so all of these things that i put my self-worth into i couldn't reach them I didn't understand why and I didn't understand why I felt so bad. Well, um, you needed you
1: wanted those things to make you feel good about yourself. You know, I, I mm-hmm. felt I felt the same exact stuff. I mean, nobody ever cared about my records, but I definitely was the same way about women. You know what I mean? Like that? If sure. I had this woman, it meant that I was good. Or, or But what I mean,
0: I for sure. But I understand that part. I didn't understand that that it was just another arm of my addiction that was just completely out of control. And that in time led me to, so I've always struggled with, uh, anxiety and, uh, some depression issues. Um, and I was losing my voice a lot and I went to this doctor for my voice. It was like, you're, you're just not a trained singer. So you sing really hard and, but you, your voice isn't damaged. I think your issue is anxiety Mm that's what's making you lose your voice, which is a whole other very interesting thing to me is, are the physical manifestations of anxiety and depression. Maybe it's for a different podcast, but uh, something that is fascinating to me. Maybe,
1: um, maybe we'll save it for the song summit, or maybe we'll save it for in two weeks. But anyway, keep going for sure.
0: So I went, so he sent me to this doctor uh, and I do not blame any of these doctors. I, I knew as soon as he said anxiety, and i want i think you should talk to this shrink i got that excited kind of giddy kind of euphoric kind of naughty feeling cuz you knew like, you were going to get high yo i knew i was going to get high legally baby yeah, it's and the that best. if it's prescribed to me again wasn't in a program wasn't you know consulting with any sober friends or anybody so in secret went to this dude i'm i, I don't remember but I, i'm almost a thousand percent sure I was not honest or less than honest about my history with addiction and prescribed me, basically gave me a choice. And I said, I'll take the Xanax, which I then took, like I've had to learn with smoking, which I quit for five years and then started. And if you hear a lighter in the background, it's because I keep lighting this stupid cigarette. I can't do, I just don't do anything a little bit and I will get addicted to just about anything that makes me feel different so he gave me like a i don't know if it was an antidepressant or something that you don't feel at least right away right he's like you got to take this for a few weeks and then the xanax and this is just as needed and it was a little a a little dose i think i threw away after about three days whatever that other stuff was and just started going to town with with the xanax and before long i was calling that doctor i was lying about oh i left for tour and I don't know what, why I would do that, but I left it in the medicine
2: cabinet <laughs> if I
0: would ever fucking forget it. Right. it was, you know, I told him, you know, one time we were playing a festival. Oh, somebody came in and stole it out of my bag. Shit like that. So I was getting into, you know, lying, manipulating behavior, um, which is which was something that I had in in sobriety on my own. I was working toward. <laughs> I immediately, when I'm sober, I'm a lot more honest. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing how that works. And so I felt myself kind of slipping in these ways and then before too long, like, I was hooked. And when I would run out, I would feel really shitty, as you know, like, with benzos or with anything you're hooked to when you don't have it.
1: Uh, I was I was so addicted to benzos. I, I had yeah. seizures everywhere. And I ben, benzos, I, I just – it made me feel – like, I loved heroin and I loved weed. But I think being a neurotic Jew, like, benzos hit my sweet spot in a yeah. way that I never could have imagined.
0: Yeah. Same until they kind of didn't work either – until I was like, there was one real, you know, kind of clear memory of I, of all places I was in Norway and I was doing like a solo tour. Obviously I don't speak the language. I had run out and I was crawling out of my fucking skin. Mm. I somehow managed to, which also goes to sh- like the determination that we can muster to figure out what we want uh, in, in these ways, like I made an appointment with some doctor out there, I showed up, I said, hey, you know, I, I either lost this medication or I ran out and I'm just feeling really bad. And he's like, man, you're, you're hooked to this. Like he wasn't, uh, he wasn't judging my ass. He's just like, this is why we don't, we hardly prescribe this stuff at all mm. in, in, this, in this country. And we only give it to the most severe patients. We'll prescribe you enough so that you could get through your tour because you could die, have a seizure, die. Um, and when you get home, I really hope, and he was so nice and sweet. He was just like, I really hope you'll go to your doctor and try to get off this stuff. It's so bad.
1: Um, kindly Norwegian medical professional.
0: Yeah. And dude, in, and the Norwegian Xanax came in a little glass, like vial that <laughs> I was, like, I was so psyched when I picked it up and it's like to think of it, I could laugh at it, but it also, it's, it's still not that long ago that I, it doesn't make me want to cry too, to be honest, because of just how I felt having that in my hand again. And the fact that it was in this like Norwegian glass bottle was, was like thrilling to me. But anyway, that, that didn't get me to quit either. I got home. I sort of tried to, I would wean myself off, but then I was taking so much of that stuff that I needed to like, I've heard somebody else talk about curating the mood through drugs and alcohol, which is something that I can very much relate to and the energy, oh my God, that, that that it takes to do that. So I would feel, I would get myself to feeling so tired uh, from taking all the stuff that I needed something to pick me up. So then I started doing, you know, I, I, I went to California and I found there was a place there that if you paid 100 bucks, they'd write you a prescription. So I, I found that out. I found some guys on the street.
2: And
1: what that, were they writing? They were writing you Adderall?
0: Yeah, Adderall, Xanax. You know, and this, this kind of gets into the darkest period of, of the relapse, which was in Skid Row downtown LA, uh, notorious yeah. certain streets there that yeah. you can you can go and, what streets what uh,
1: streets I, I used to cop on uh Sixth Street and Spring Street and yeah, right there. Broadway. Yeah that's the spot. You climb up into yeah. a buck each on that street. I love that.
0: Yeah. So they had anything that I wanted. Sometimes it was real, sometimes it wasn't real. One time I was down there Way too late, mm. and the guys were just like, Which I've had this is how I am when I'm out there. Like, I've had a, a number of drug dealers tell me that they weren't gonna sell to me, or <laughs> not because I didn't have the money, they're like concerned, or like, You shouldn't be here right now. Like, what the fuck are you doing down here?
1: Meaning it's too dangerous, yeah. Like, it's what are you? You're, you're not a crackhead, why are you here?
0: Or like, you like white boy down at this like here at this hour like you know maybe like at dinner time or whatever you know like at four o'clock in the morning just like what the fuck are you doing here yeah man i just was like like anybody that's up to this sort of stuff was in a lot of pickles that could have gotten a lot more pickly sure Um, and particularly i just started hearing about fentanyl toward sort of the the end of the relapse period period and um And, and, you know, me getting sober again. But it's like the shit that I was buying is exactly what I'm like now hearing is, you know, that that is that that there's just like a a real bad problem with um,
1: these pills, these press pills, right? These These press, press the pressies, they're calling them in Brooklyn now, pressies.
0: Okay, so I was I would take it and I would, you know, bite a little bit to see if it had the taste. And if it didn't spit it out, because sometimes they were real, sometimes they weren't. And just, you know, knowing how kind of depraved I was being, but not really knowing that I'm fucking playing Russian roulette. You right. Know the mean? risk. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you were like some kind of human fentanyl test strip. Well, it
0: wasn't for fentanyl. I just didn't want to ingest it if it wasn't what I considered or hoped to be the real thing. Like that clonopin
1: flavor, that sweet, weird clonopin flavor that I can still taste in my mouth. It's weird. So can I. It's so, so weird.
0: Yeah. Yep. 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 yep.
1: So, what was, so yeah, the end? I, what was the end of this horrible run? Uh,
0: running my car off the road several times, still didn't do it. Scaring a couple of, you know, just acting terribly uh, to some friends, uh, stealing from people, um, you know, that I knew that had pills and stuff. Just acting real weird. You know, I, ha- I dated a couple of people out there and it was just like, the way I look at it now is just every arm of every arm that I recognize or have experienced in my life of my addiction and, and the possibilities of my, my – all of my addictive possibilities were just fucking partying. Like they were just all out and completely out of control. So it kind of anything I touched or got too close was going to be just toxic as fuck. What ended it was, one, I think it's important to say that I was feeling – Though so I've never had, thankfully, a plan to execute the action, i very suicidal a mm-hmm. lot of the time and would have suicidal, uh, what do you call it, ideations? Yeah. Which I still do on occasion, nothing like I would then. But that was a nightly or morningly or whatever time I was trying to go to bed or whatever time I was trying to wake up. That was very much a part of my world. The feeling that I remembered oh so well of when I was still drinking, but it, it, but I hated the feeling of, uh, you know, it wasn't working for me anymore. And you hear people talk about this of like, it almost wasn't me driving to the liquor store, but there I was.
1: The autopilot kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And I've heard, I've seen some people like roll their eyes at that and that's fine. But I relate to that. I mean, I, I would be driving to the liquor store crying. Like, I don't want to do this. I'd be flying back to Los Angeles from a tour or whatever from Nashville, my, you know, my home. And just I would be saying to myself the whole flight I'm not going downtown I'm gonna get in my car I'm gonna go home I would get in my car I would start going back to the apartment the place I was renting and then you you know we've heard it now a million times but like that was my experience I just I was out of my fucking mind and my one of my best friends this guy Joel he's done a lot of work with me. Um, he's a really talented videographer and photographer and just one of my best friends. And he and I, uh, he, I was trying to finish a record out there that I never still haven't finished because I was just, I really just couldn't finish anything. Also maybe was saying I couldn't finish a song for about a year, which was the longest period that I'd ever gone without finishing a song. And, um, and I was trying to wean myself off of, you know, the, these drugs And Joel came out to have a fun, brotherly road trip with his boy Slim from uh, Los Angeles to Nashville. Mm. And we were going to take pictures for this record that, of course, I was going to eventually finish. And we were going to shoot videos. And and we did some of that stuff. But the trip was a nightmare. And I was just so, just in such a bad way. And he had, I gave him no heads up as to what was going on. And he just had no fucking idea um, what was happening, why it was happening. And I just remember in that trip, him just looking at me, that look that that I had sort of brought up in some other story before. of just like, who, I don't know who you are. Like, I'm scared. I'm uh, annoyed. I love you, but I don't know how to help you. Like, just like, are you just depressed? Like, what the fuck is going on? Um, and the, the trip was so hard that, and what do you call these, uh, geographics? Like I had gone out to, to California thinking that I would start doing yoga, drinking green juice, fall in love with a hippie, finish the record, get off the pills. But of course, when I got out there, I just amped up all my,
1: well, it's the access to the pills. It's like amazing. Oh
0: yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or to whatever you want. And then I think, I guess the thought process was, well, that didn't work out. I'll go back to Nashville where I got sober the last time where I own a home and I'll kick it there. So I got back and I remember just dropping him off at the airport and he turned around and just looked at me like he had lost, like he just didn't recognize me. And to see, like to see that, have that kind of reflection and like a brother at that particular time, it just hit me so, so hard. And I watched him go into the airport. I drove off and just started to cry. And then, which I wouldn't recommend doing because it's not good to look at your phone while we drive. Uh, but <laughs> I just started looking up um, treatment centers on, on the ride home. And uh, I think three days later, I was in one.
1: Nice. Well, I think that's a great, I mean, I think that's, uh, it's unusual that, that clarity hits somebody like you or me in that moment. But it's awesome that it did. I
0: think that there was so many things that were happening that were leading me to, I know I need to get this under control. I kept trying to get it under control myself. Uh, and maybe that's the surrender that we often hear about was I wasn't going to listen to you or to anybody by telling you that I couldn't do it on my own. And I didn't, I wasn't not listening because I thought I was being arrogant or I thought I was being so strong that I, that I thought I just had it. But I, until I experienced that, that like utter distrust for myself, which is a very bleak fucking feeling. When you're like, I do not trust myself to not get in my car and go to the liquor store. I didn't trust myself to not go call every fucking pharmacy and try to bullshit them or to see if maybe there was a prescript, you know, there was like prescriptions around, cause I traveled, you know, for a living. Uh, I don't know if someone's getting confused in the systems of Walgreens or whatever pharmacies, sure. but there's was different pharmacies, different prescriptions. Um, so it it really was at that point where I was like, I guess I just, I couldn't fool myself that I'll try to wean myself off again. I also didn't know where to get anything in Nashville, which was a blessing. I didn't have any numbers. I don't know the, the spots. Um, and, and yeah, so yeah, I, I called my best friend, uh, who's been sober for over 20 years.
1: And he He was was psyched, right?
0: Uh, Anybody that knew me was psyched. And anybody that knew me and was really close to me that I thought maybe didn't know, knew something was up. my manager, I called him. I said, man, I'm really sorry. I think I said, I'm sorry. I got to go get help. And he was just beautiful. I'm so glad we clearly know something's up. I mean, I'm such a difficult person to deal with when I'm living that way because everything fucking scares me. You know, like every every decision is hard for me unless I'm making it in that sweet spot of being high.
2: <laughs> totally. Um,
0: if you catch me in any other zone, I'm just a fucking anxious mess. I still, I'm not trying to wrap, like tie a cute ribbon or bow around this thing, but I will say I definitely still experience anxiety and depression at times, but it is so much less than which is a, just a, such an ironic thing of it. It's like I feel way more anxious and depressed when I'm trying to self-medicate. Of course, of course. Right.
1: When You said before that when you went to treatment, you were bummed out that it was a uh, 12-step-based. Like, Very
0: disappointed at first, yes.
1: So what turned it around?
0: That's a spiritual experience, right? I mean, what, the way I think of it now is I went to treatment – and I went into recovery in the program to, to try to quit drugs, you know, and we can say drugs and alcohol. I mean, it's, if I do one, I'm going to do the other and I'm going to do it all successively. And just to try to like develop some tools to be sober. But then like probably most all of us, then I wanted to be out of there. I didn't want to make a bunch of friends. I didn't want it to be a lifelong thing that I'm going to be working on. The idea of doing any kind of recovery work sounded like homework to me. It sound, seemed like sober school. Like I'm just not interested.
1: Did you bring your guitar? <laughs> did you bring your guitar to treatment? I did,
0: and and they wouldn't let me add it until, uh, until a guy you know knew that I was a musician. I think he he thankfully befriended me and was very kind, and we would play. You know, we played together a couple of times.
1: Did you get the place to sing Hotel California with you?
0: Did he sing Hotel California? No, I don't know the chords.
1: How do you not know? That's the ultimate rehab acoustic guitar song is Hotel oh, California. Really? Yeah, that's what I always yeah. play. That's what I always play when I go to detox. Um, no. No, but, but-,
0: but, I, but I just wanted to say because that's uh, – I'm going on and on. And I realized something did switch for me where I did really – I'll just say it. Like I kind of felt – I did. I fell in love with it being a day-to-day thing and a – process as opposed to what i always wanted for anything that i want in my life is an immediate thing and i don't know if that sounds too hokey but it is really true it's like i came just to try to get off drugs and i stay because it really does help me become more the the fucking dude that i want to be like it helps me it, it helps me have a more graceful sweet life that is sometimes really hard you know obviously but it's like I just had to experience it because I wouldn't have believed it, that by connecting with other people, like the idea of putting out a record and having a conversation like this a year ago, I wasn't interested in. I I felt very uncomfortable about it. I felt like it was maybe, well, whatever. I had reasons for feeling very uncomfortable about it. But what I find is that it helps me a lot to talk to other people, particularly other people that, that, that lived through it. So you know, it's not like an academic, scientific kind of thing. It's just like talking to, to other brothers and sisters that you know, in their own way, have been to hell and don't want to go back. And that that's how I feel. Like I feel like I've seen and felt some. You know, people've seen and felt a lot worse. It's not a competition. I'm just saying. Like for me, that shit is hell, man. And um
1: yes, I
0: just feel so so fortunate that I got another chance at life. And I, and I I hope I. I will take it and you know i do think for me therapy which i resisted program stuff it i've now gotten to see what attempting being a sober guy sober human is like without it and uh and now i get to see what it's like with it and for me personally it it is night and day the difference um So I I can't deny it because I've lived through both of them.
1: Well, it's like it's like my favorite thing when I when I first got clean um, was the idea of being my genuine self and being being able to be my genuine self, the billing of that and the billing of being happy, joyous and free were like, holy shit. I want. I want to be my genuine self, and I want to be happy, joyous, and free. And it sounds to me like it's similar. Like it's that. That was the calling. And it's like, oh my god, I get to do this, and I get to work towards it, as opposed to like some like drop on your tongue, instant gratification. And I, yeah.
0: And if I work toward it, it makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel like I'm growing. Uh, the people that I love that surround me, my relationships grow with them. Um, I got to make this record the strawberry mansion record, which was the most songs I'd ever written in a short period of time, sober as a mother. And so the fear that I had yet again of like, am I going to write songs? Um, Whether people like, love those songs or hate those songs or that record, uh, or people hear it or don't hear it. It's such a wonderful gift for myself to have so early in round two of sobriety, getting the kind of experience, a creative uh, burst, if you will, that, uh, that I can sort of keep in my pocket is like, just remember, dude, because that's where shit gets really hairy for me. It's not that I'm out at a bar or at a show and everybody's drinking and I, I, and I don't know what to do with my hands and I want to, you know, which is common. I get that for me. I don't know if it's more insidious or not, but for me, it's like when I'm trying to write a song and I'm alone and I can't get to the feeling. And if only I had a bottle of wine and a few of those pills, right you know that's where the thinking starts to come back for me so just to have had kind of the faucet turn on and be able to write a bunch of songs that i like early in sobriety round 2 was um was a profound thing for me for sure
1: i have to say and i'm i'm like i'm not an easy person but i really really like the record and I, and i don't get the chance to tell somebody that like i rarely have people on who just put out a record and it's like, it's good. Your music is really good. It sounds good. It has a good feeling to it. You've got a nice voice. The instrumentation is beautiful. I think you made a beautiful record.
0: I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Now, let me ask you a real star fuckery question before we go. Okay. Hit me. I thought we were just getting started. Yeah. When, when you're touring the world and you're playing festivals, like, what was the, the most thrilling experience? Like, Did you ever meet Bob Dylan? No.
0: Uh, I have gotten to meet a couple... Heroes though, in that way, and had lucky experiences. You know, I I, I, I don't always want to meet those people. Uh, and you know, we go, we hear, you know, be, you don't want to meet your heroes because they, you they'll know, they'll disappoint you. you.
1: Right, 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 right,
0: right. <clears throat> I got to uh, about a year before he passed away. I got to open a few shows for John Prime, which was wow. a dream of mine. Um, and he hit me with some. You want to talk about some spiritual shit? I was so nervous to open for him, and he's such a, a gracious, awesome guy that he would have whoever was opening for him join him on stage to, to sing one of his classic tunes with him. And, uh, and I was told this, and I was very excited, and I was very nervous, and they said, you know, John's going to, uh, we don't know how many songs he's going to do, but he's going to do, uh, you know, send the band off, and he'll do a few just solo numbers, and then, then he'll call you up, just be ready. I said, okay. So i don't know if he was just feeling it that night but he j- at least it would felt like he was just playing song after song uh which was incredible but i was just the anticipation was building right and i'm like when is he gonna call me i'm gonna ex- fucking explode and he he finally calls me up there i'm trying to break the ice i just met him briefly before the show and uh just trying to break the ice with him and the audience and myself i guess and i uh I said in the mic to him, I go, uh, Mr. Prine, this is like one of the great, you know, the greatest honor of my my career. And I'm going to try to act cool, but it's going to be hard. And without skipping a beat, he looks at me. He's like, it's always hard when you try to act cool. And I'll fucking (laughs) never forget that, man. It was so great. He he was amazing. I got to meet and, and chat with with Willie Nelson. At, at, they do a thing at, at their ranch there around South by Southwest and they have a a festival there that uh, that's really special. Yeah. A few of the people that I've gotten to meet that are sort of on that level. I don't know if I just caught them on good days, but they seem to have a quality about them that is very kind. And maybe if you're used, if you've been like a God to people, like I met Springsteen one time, which is a whole other story. He came with his son to this little show in Asbury Park, and it was crazy. This was before I was sober the first time. In this tiny little bar, and I'm looking out and playing, and there's Blue Springsteen and Bob in his head. Um, but all of those guys seem like very genuinely kind and, and humble, and I don't know if they just have to... Or, or they're just humans, and so they're probably just kind and humble at times. You, but,
1: ca- you They didn't yeah. disappoint you, though. You caught them on good days, so that's awesome. Not only didn't
0: they disappoint me, they showed me and others who I, who I know that I, that I think are legends that are just lesser known, um, who are just good ass real people, that that's what I, that's what I aspire to be and not some kind of, man, it's lonely to try to act cool. Like Prine was so, I love that. It's exhausting. And it's like you were saying about in sobriety, having an opportunity to get to know yourself more in a truer sense Dude, that's what it's that's what it's all about to be a little bit more comfortable, to be more kind to yourself and to other people. Like that's what it's about. Um, but yeah, it was it was inspiring to meet guys that are on that level, and and see that they were they were sweet dudes.
1: That's awesome. Did you do a lot of drugs at purchase or no? Yes, I did. It I used I sold, I sold a, I, I sold a ton of acid at purchase. What drugs did you do at purchase?
0: Uh. Well, again, it was it was the my two sweet loves. It was pharmaceuticals and booze. I did uh, blow for the first time, but I did not like it. Um, it it lasted too short and made me irritable for too long. So yeah, that that that's what I was doing mainly was a lot of prescription pills and a lot of booze.
1: How did you wind up at Purchase anyway? A fair question. I
0: had a job at the Sunoco station. I think it was the Sunoco gas station. Um, I didn't think I was gonna go to college. My mother said, if you're able to get into a college, we can uh, financially uh, make that happen um, as long as it's not too expensive or good luck. And good luck to me kind of meant getting that job at the Sunoco or the Wawa, and I was not prepared to do that. So Purchase was the only school that I got into, I think I was on like waiting lists maybe for some private schools that would have been too expensive. And Purchase was the, the choice because it was so close to New York City. Um,
1: and that's how you hit sidewalks was through Purchase.
0: I guess that, yeah, it must have been toward the middle or end where I I had a girlfriend. And I know we're, we're probably running out of time, but I had one of the nicest things, and I was a bad boyfriend uh, to this lovely human being. She graduated before I did, and I just remember her pulling out the Village Voice or Time Out or something and circling um, all of the open mics uh, in the back of the newspaper, the magazine, and giving it to me and be like, "This is what you say you want to do. Here's some places you could just go and do and play it. songs. Right? I was like, "Holy shit!" And so I started to do that. Yeah.
1: Did you have the Bob Dylan fantasy of playing in the Village? And I mean, you're actually good. Like, I was never particularly good when I did it, and I and I had that Bob Dylan fantasy in my head.
0: I had so much of a Bob Dylan fantasy, as a lot of us I think do, that do this sort of music, um, that I would come home from high school, I guess it was, and watch the D.A. Penny Baker film. Yeah, don't look it. back. So many times that I started to emulate the way that he would talk and and all that, and um,
1: he was so mean to Donovan in that movie, right?
0: So fucking mean to Donovan. But I was so sort of obsessed with. You know, I got obsessed with Nirvana. I watched this Minor Threat video from the old 930 club. Like, these were pivotal, you know, bands and things for me. But with Dylan, I remember thinking to myself, this is what I want to do for my whole life, and I'm never going to – I'm not going to be Bob Dylan. Like, uh, my... I remember feeling really bad about myself one day because some record label was going to offer me a deal, and then they yanked it, and I thought my career was over. I'm very dramatic, brother. And then listening to Neil Young, uh, live at Massey Hall. And he was, I think a year younger than I was at the time when he was, re- when he did that show. Right. And it's so, inc- just him on guitar and it it's so incredibly good. I started to, again, tear up, cry and just be like, what am I even doing? Like, what is the point? Uh, I can't even get this label to pay, you know, that to, to give me the deal. And I i haven't written anything close to this. Uh, and eventually again, it goes back to, I didn't realize we were going to have that theme, but it's a good one is you got to just find your own unique voice and, and try to lean into that and embrace it. Um, and so I, I stopped, li- I had to stop listening to Bob Dylan for a while because I was trying to emulate it. And, um, and I wasn't going to be Kurt Cobain. I'm not going to be Bob Dylan or Neil Young. I think for me, trying to remember that everything is a fucking process, I want to be on the mountaintop at all times. And that was a big part of my addiction. Continues to be. Like, to to enjoy the, you know, that's real bumper sticker-ish, but to enjoy the journey. Enjoy the to, ride, right? Enjoy the
1: ride. No, and dude, I, 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 I get it. I, I want so much all the time. Like I want, in my mind, Dopey, which is this drug addict recovery show, in my mind, it should be bigger than, you know, as big as Joe Rogan or something. And it can't be, but I still... But even
0: if it was, you probably would want it to... More.
1: More. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our,
0: Our wants are never enough. Our needs are always provided for. That one
1: hits me. I don't think I could ever say that with a straight face, but I totally get the sentiment. And I really, really appreciate the amount of time you spent with us. You're super generous. I love the music and thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: I really enjoyed talking to you and I appreciate it.
1: Oh, me too, man. Me too.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So that was Langhorne Slim and check out his music. It's it's really soulful and he's, he's really, really good actually. And, um, I'm not going to get to see him. He's playing tomorrow night. We're not going to get to see him, but it was awesome to talk to him. And I think we will be doing a lab next fall in the Park City Song Summit. So if you're anywhere near Utah, you should come check that shit out. Check him out at langhornslim.com, on Spotify, whatever. And before we go, I just want to read a dopey email. You know, dopey emails and voicemails are so important to the show They are part of the lifeblood of Dopey. So send in an email. Send in a voicemail. The email is dopeypodcast at gmail.com Write a review. My poor dad is staring at the fucking iTunes reviews wondering why there are no reviews coming in. Well, there are some reviews coming in, but they're trickling in. We need more. M-O-R-E more. Anyway, here is the uh, email. It's from a guy named Brandon, and he says, Hey Dave, I came across your podcast last week and have been listening to a mix of old and new episodes throughout the workday nonstop. I started looking for recovery-ish podcasts because although I feel relatively solid in my recovery with almost three and a half years of sobriety, I do get feelings of guilt once in a while because I no longer attend AA meetings, I don't have a sponsor, etc. I stopped my involvement with the program after having mixed feelings about it. With many meetings leaving me feeling more anxious and uneasy than when I walked into them. And then, with the birth of my daughter, I started to find other ways to work through my thoughts and fears regarding addiction, working with a therapist, talking with my wife very often, other sober buddies, etc., I do feel that although I'm thinking about my sobriety on a daily basis, it's become more of a reactive thinking with situations triggering some moderate thoughts slash feelings and behaviors. I'll sort of take notes of what those are, but what I'm missing from the program is the proactive thinking involving recovery. And I think that Dopey will be a perfect addition to my current recovery. I think the way that you view life as an addict is very similar to how I've tried to view it, so I was immediately drawn to the podcast. I also want to tell you how sad I was to learn about the passing of Chris after only hearing a few episodes. I could tell how wonderful a person he was, and I know he would be proud of your ability to push through and continue doing what you do, as many of us wouldn't have the strength to do that. Anyway, not sure what the hell I was going for with this email, but wanted to let you know you have a new fan who has found... The fucked up stories of addicts to be extremely comforting while also reminding me that I can't ever be too comfortable in my recovery. Cheers, Brandon. Thank you, Brandon, for the email. I, I can't thank you enough, really. Anybody that sends an email, it just makes me happy. It makes my day. Congratulations on your three and a half years. I mean, that's a big deal. We should never, I mean, we none of us like our, you know, we we were all drug addicts, and, and and any days that we get are incredible victories. And one of my favorite things that I hear all the time is if you're off the beam, how easy it is to get back on the beam just by recommitting yourself. And like, I didn't go to a meeting. I haven't been to a meeting in like 11 days or something, which is a long time for me. And it makes me feel a bit off the beam, a bit uneasy. And I, But I know the nature of, of my program is to make a decision to recommit myself to my recovery, and it's like magic. It's like, poof, you're back in your recovery because you've made that commitment. And I'm not saying it has to be 12-step. I'm saying whatever you're comfortable with doing is all you have to do, and all you have to do is flip the switch in your mind and make a decision, and you're back in your program. And the thing about Chris, I got another email from somebody recently and it happens once in a while that somebody will send in an email like now, and they've only heard the first 30 episodes or something. And it blows me away because in their world, Chris is alive. And like, and I always feel like the need to tell them straight away that Chris just died. So it is sad, obviously that he's dead. And, and it's so odd that for some people he's still alive and I know that he would be incredibly proud that you wrote an email and mentioned him. And, and I think it's all incredibly valuable. So that's all I have to say about anything. And I think I'm starting... Forget Aaron, it's going to be Ask Dave. If you guys have any questions and you need some really good advice, ask Dave. No, I'm kidding. You can still ask Aaron. Aaron will be back on the show with much better advice than I have. My advice is like, if you feel like you're out of recovery... Get back into it. Snap into it, man. Do your thing. Let your freak flag fly. Anyway, thank you for listening to the show. It's always a pleasure. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris.
2: I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder... have to walk around my neighborhood I want to be good, so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good, so bad But bad desires are lie. I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch as aeroplanes just pass me by I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people What it means to be alive I want to be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad